Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. This is Francie Kaler, your host for PIZ Classified. Welcome to the show this morning. Uh, my guest today, I'm very pleased to have a returning guest, Susan Lehman. Susan is a capital crime specialist, both fact and uh, guilt phase. I mean, guilt phase and uh, penalty phase, capital uh, murder crimes. So that's always of course, very interesting. She's also the author of, uh, I think, three books and and or two books and working on another or something like that. She's a busy lady. Welcome, Susan. Well, welcome, and thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, you know, I looked at your website. I had, had uh, we talked on, a, on the show, like, mm, I think, 2017? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> it's been a while and with COVID you know we've lost two years so I I always have every time I think of something that trying to figure out how long it's been since something happened I have to add two years because it seems like I don't know it's just a weird world <laughs> yeah uh, I we we actually we actually lost several years there didn't we and uh <laughs> uh um and, and so yeah there's always like Okay, the COVID years. I have to take into account the COVID years. years. (laughs) Gee, that sounds like a good title for a book. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. (laughs) So so it's uh, delightful to have you on the show, Susan. Uh, So um, what has happened in your business, your life, your cases, your books since 2017? So since 2017... um, I I began writing this new book, Southern Lives and Homicides, and hired an editor and was going uh, full blast. And I had a I had a, a, a the last time that I was on, I talked about a, a, a short story called The Process Server, and uh, I was approached by a group in Ogden, Utah, and we turned that into a one act play. Uh, there was just a, a lot going on creatively. And then I took on yet another capital murder case out of Utah, and um, that one is still ongoing. Um, usually, I would work three years on a case. Uh, this one has just been going on since 2018, uh, and I don't know. COVID, COVID completely changed the way the court systems work. And COVID also changed the way I work in that I'm not going to take any more capital cases because I no longer want to go into jails or prisons. So that that sort of changed me. Yeah. And, and you decided because of COVID, because of the exposure to COVID or another reason? No, it, it, I think burnout was more, um, was more, you know, over, over, I've had an over 30 year career as a, as an investigator and the last 20 or so had been completely devoted to capital murder and mitigation work. And 
I came to realize when I could no longer go into prisons and I could no longer go into jails, I came to realize that I did not miss the work anymore. I'd worked on 37 cases, and I just decided that once this, this uh, last case concludes, then I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. So, you know, I, I turned my... Yeah, people, I think people don't realize how taxing and emotionally draining capital cases are. And to have done 37, um, most yes. people don't last that long. No, no, they, they really don't. Um, the bureaucracy is tough. Working with some of the lawyers is tough. Um, working with clients is actually probably the easiest part of the scenario. Um, in 2018, my favorite client was executed in Georgia. And I had initially worked on his case from 2005 until 2007 when he had a habeas hearing, when he had a, a hearing to uh, determine if appeals were going to go forward or to give him a new trial. And we had stayed in touch and we had built a friendship over those years, something that doesn't usually happen. And uh, in late 2017... I was contacted by the Federal Defender's Office in Atlanta and said that Robert had been issued a uh, death warrant. And would I come back in and, and, and work on the case for a little bit longer? And, of course, I did. And I went back mm -hmm. to Georgia and uh, saw him again And uh, in May, the following May 2018, he was executed in spite of our best efforts. And he was the first of all of my clients to be executed. I've since had one more uh, that was uh, executed in Alabama. And after that time, I decided, you know, we expend all this energy, the attorneys spend all this money, and it's really a little bit all too late in many of these cases. And uh, and so I just came to see. I just came to view the the work um, for what it was, how difficult it was. So for a lot of reasons, I'm not doing the work anymore. Yeah, it it is extremely difficult work, particularly particularly the mitigation phase. And yes, let, yeah, let's let's go back, Susan, because you know I'm sure a lot of people have not heard your. Uh, your other show, um, how did you get into doing capital investigations? Well, I, I started as a private investigator in Alabama, and I, uh, I, I took on all of the usual cases. I took on divorce cases and custody cases and, and I... embezzlement cases, and, as, and, and I started that way. And I marketed myself. Uh, quite a lot. That's one of the most important things you can do um, as a fledgling investigator is, uh, you, you know, get, get in with the legal secretaries, get in with the attorneys, and build your business organically that way. And uh, by 2005, I, again, had pretty much reached a crossroads. I was, I was bored with the work. I was bored with process serving. I was bored with, uh, you know, people's problems, essentially. And I, so you took on capital crimes. Yeah, that's way. And I had. 
Um, yeah, out of, out of frying pan into the fire, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, he, and he had everything just seemed kind of a, sig- insignificant and boring. I was just tired, and I had decided to close my agency, but I had not closed it yet. And one day, I got a phone call from a law firm in Birmingham. And they, the, the secretary was one, I, I was in their database, the secretary was one who I had met with before a couple of times, and she said, you know, she said, we're having some difficulty getting some records in a case. She didn't say anything about a capital case, she didn't say anything about anything, she just said, can you come up and meet with us? And uh, can you, you know, maybe see if you can get some of these records? And when I arrived for the meeting in Birmingham, I met with three attorneys. One was a partner in a firm from Washington, D.C., and one was a partner in a firm from Palo Alto, California. And they were working on a capital murder case, and they were working on uh, the appellate process, which, of course, I knew nothing about at the time. Mm. And they gave me... um, an assignment. And they gave me an assignment to find a handful of records. Well, one thing led to another. I found those records without a problem. And then they kept giving me more and more work. And before I knew it, I was completely on the team and the, um, for the client at that point. And from, from that moment on, my phone never stopped ringing. I never stopped getting inquiries about doing mitigation work. And I learned how to do mitigation work from attorneys. I learned how to do mitigation work from expert witnesses and learned the business just by simply working the business. So uh, why don't you explain how mitigation works for you and how you do that process? So the whole the whole point of mitigation is if someone is on trial in a capital murder case, and capital murder should be described as it is a murder that is committed with at least one aggravating crime. Uh, so that is a murder that could be uh, that that occurred in conjunction with a carjacking, that occurred in conjunction with a home burglary. Uh, it, there has to be one other crime that is committed during the murder that uh, brings it up to a capital level. And these states in the South are famous for overcharging mm-hmm. and underrepresenting right. uh, defendants. And quite often what I found uh, through my work was that many court-appointed attorneys did not know really how to effectively uh, represent their clients. So my sole purpose of doing mitigation was to explain to the jurors or to explain to a judge in an appellate hearing why this person's life matters. It essentially tells the why of the story, how this person came to be in a situation where he may have committed a murder. And the role of the mitigation specialist 
is in tandem with the attorneys. And typically, on a capital murder case, the first chair attorney handles the trial phase and the second chair attorney will handle the sentencing phase. And we, we go through, we go through the, the presumption of what if this client is found guilty because in Alabama courtrooms, most of the time they were found guilty. Mm-hmm. And so it would roll right into the sentencing phase. And at that point, I had been working with whatever relatives I could find, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and then I would spread out into the community, teachers, clergy members, police officers, anyone who had come in contact with the defendant prior to the crime, anyone who would have known this person's growing up situation, if you will. Uh, what kind of support was in the household, what kind of student. In the meantime, I would have gathered every single possible record that I could have found. I would have releases signed, and I would gather records for everybody in the family, school records, mental health records, if there were any. If there were any um, records through social services, try to get those. Um, I, I would do essentially a scorched earth uh, of record gathering so that I would build what was called a case chronology. And that was specifically about the mitigation. When were the grandparents born? What were the situation? When were the parents born? What was the situation? Uh, You know, kind kind of give everybody the most thorough background that you possibly can because you're, you're looking for, uh, Educational deficits, you're looking for mental health deficits. Is there a history of substance abuse? Is there a history of drug abuse? Is there a history of violence? Um, and, and it takes two years to effectively build and get people comfortable enough to talk to you and for details to come to light. And I, I, I would find oftentimes that clients were very poor historians, that they would know very little about their lives. They would know very little about their upbringing, about their parents. Um, and, and it was only through the process of mitigation of extensive interviews uh, to find really, to come close to understanding what had happened to this, to this person. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the goal is to uh, identify all of the family members and teachers and everyone else for the expert witnesses to interview and to come to know, and so that they would be able to have a full understanding of who this client is. And the other thing that we did was we prepped, as we went through, we prepped the family members, the teachers. We identified who we wanted to testify on the behalf of the client. This is an an extraordinarily moving situation to Mm -hmm. be able to have 
family members come in during sentencing, their loved one has just been found guilty of capital murder, and to have them come in and to tell people why this person's life why this person's life matters. Because quite often prosecutors paint defendants and accused murderers as monsters. And it's really important that the jurors be made to see that this person, through whatever reason, committed this horrible crime. But here's the situation. It's very, very important that the jurors be given the opportunity to understand that this person's life matters to someone, Mm -hmm. to humanize them. Right. And that's important. That's important in the trial phase. Um, in the post-conviction phase, and I worked, I worked half of my, half of my cases were trial cases, the other half were post-conviction cases, meaning people were already on death row. And in the post-conviction phase, it was simply a matter of showing how it was a lawyer's ineffective, uh, assistance of counsel that put this person on death row. So... There were, there were, they were complicated issues and they were extraordinarily rewarding cases to work on to a point. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some people, many people, I suspect would say, why bother? Why try to save his life? This guy is a horrible person. Why would you even put out the effort or anybody put out the effort to save his life? Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> Trust me, I've yeah, heard many that. times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why does this? So, so you you come down to, you come down to. It always comes back to poorly trained, uh, and a, a court appointed lawyers who who and overcharged clients. Um, in many cases, there was no question about the guilt or innocence of of the client. There, there was no question. Mm-hmm. The question was, did this crime rise to the level of capital murder? Should this crime be punishable by death, or should this person be given a sentence like life without parole? Where, essentially, you stop the appeals process, you have one automatic appeal, and then it's done. Uh, you know, a lot of people are opposed to government-sanctioned murder. That's what they call capital punishment. I don't really go that far. Where, where I, my belief system with capital punishment is that we have an understanding in this country that everyone is guaranteed the right to trial and that everyone should be able to have the same defense as everyone else. Yeah, I, l- let me see if I can clarify that. Okay. We all have a right to counsel. We all have a right to a good defense. And a good defense should not be predicated by how much you can afford to spend. Correct. If, if I had seen over the years wealthy people or people of means end up on death row, perhaps I would have changed my mind. But it's an unequal system. 
the people who are charged with death with the with death penalty crimes, the people who are given court appointed attorneys are those who can't afford regular counsel, you know, to pay for counsel. Correct. Oftentimes, yeah. my clients have no understanding of the court system. Oftentimes, they've dropped out of school. One of the most critical uh, pieces of information that I would be looking for was their IQ, their IQ level. What's their IQ? Because if their IQ is below, say, 60 or 65, they're not death penalty eligible, depending on the state. Mm-hmm. Alabama had a very low, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, you're, I think you had to be below <laughs> 60. Uh, yeah. to be Alabama is just, no, they're notorious. <laughs> that state is notorious. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I worked there for, you know, I lived there and I worked there for 16 years. It's like, you know, every time I thought I was shocked that something else would come along that would shock me even more. Um, and, and, and so that was the necessity of school records and that was the necessity of psychological testing, especially if they, if they were borderline. Um, with with their and and then you're looking for so if you have someone with a low IQ say of 70 uh, then you're looking at how functional are the parents how functional are the siblings uh, how functional you want to look at as closely as you can how they grew up the ability to make decisions the ability to think properly are there underlying mental illness issues. Uh, you know, so, so the thing is, is that not all of us are created equal and Good point. just because Good point. you're, just because, just because you're charged with a horrible crime does not necessarily make you an evil person. And it certainly does not diminish the necessity for a fair trial. True. And, and so I maybe I've maybe I've answered you. Yeah. There. Well, Hopefully. it's always it's always been interesting to me, just as a as an aside, totally aside, that people that are uh, anti-abortionists are also pro-death penalty, and it's always fascinated <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I have always I've I've always uh, I've always been puzzled by that, especially um, after 2010. I, I participated in a, as a mitigation specialist in a particularly awful crime. Uh, and the, the client's name was Barry Jones. He was out of Opelika, Alabama. And Barry was charged with the murder of his two-year-old son. Okay. Mm. Mm. On the, uh, I, had, I had over my career, I had several cases. Uh, where babies were the victims. Mm-hmm. Each one had a different outcome. But Barry was charged, and I was his mitigation specialist. And the Barry was slow. <laughs> Barry, Barry was very, very sweet. He was very sweet. He was very appreciative. He didn't quite understand what I was doing. In getting his records and working diligently to get his records, um, I had discovered that every school that he had attended, the teachers wanted him tested for 
mental retardation. And his mother would always decline. And how she would decline was she would pull him out of school, use another relative's address, and change schools on him. Mm-hmm. Well, I sat through um, the jury selection process on that case. And people were actually asked how they felt about abortion. Mm-hmm. And I was very puzzled by that, but they were asked because the prosecutors wanted a very particular type of jury. They wanted, um, uh, they wanted very conservative. They wanted very, they wanted people who attended church regularly. Um, they wanted, they wanted not a sophisticated jury. They wanted a primarily white jury. Uh, the defendant was black. And so you see these things happen. You see these things happen, and all you can do is shake your head because none of the people on the jury could have been construed as any of Barry's peers. Um, And they came in and they brought a particular mindset into the the jury room. Um, Needless to say, he, he was very quickly convicted. Right. Um, we were we were able through mitigation, we were able to get him a sentence of life without parole, which is really not any better, to tell you the truth. Right. Yeah. So you know, neither option, neither option is good. Okay. And his mother has been launching appeal after appeal after appeal ever since, mm-hmm. because there were a number of errors made in the trial. Uh, but he's still he's still you know in prison at this point. Uh, it's a sad business is really yeah, what it is. It is. There, there yeah. really aren't any, any good answers. There aren't any good answers to any of it. Uh, it's, it's a sad business. It is, is a sad is. business. And, you know, often uh, I know you get asked this question too. Why, you know, why are you working on some monstrous case in various ways of putting it? And, you know, the reality is, most defendants, and I'm saying this because I know I'm going to get pushed back, uh, most yeah. defendants are not monsters. They are really regular people that got themselves in a bad situation. They yes, got, absolutely. With the wrong, and, you know. and, right, and, and it's important to be able to tell jurors and a judge what this bad situation was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, it's uh, either and, they're... they're their cohorts, their co-participants, their neighborhood. Uh, they just, you know, mm-hmm. they happen to be there just at the right time. And when, and often, like your client, um, maybe not in this case, but often they become the fall person for something somebody else did, like handing them the gun or something like that that mm-hmm. they're not really understanding. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's very, very true. Um, in, in this particular situation, uh in this particular situation, the prosecutors wanted to have a doctor testify. He was an emergency room doctor. And he, and all the way through, through all of the hearings, through all of the hearings prior to trial, the defense wanted that testimony blocked because the testimony was not substantiated by the medical examiner's report. 
And the judge who was elected, who was up for election that year, mm-hmm. went ahead and decided to allow that testimony to be heard. Interesting. Even though everyone knew that it was likely false testimony. The jury didn't know the jury didn't know that. Right. But the second the second the jury heard that information, that was it. We'd lost them. And the only mm-hmm. way that we could save Barry's life was through mitigation at that point. Because the the testimony and and the galling part about the whole thing was that we all knew from the prosecution to the doctor to the judge to the defense attorney we all knew that the testimony was overblown and untrue. This is what happens in mm-hmm. courtrooms across the country. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, this is Susan, what happens. I want to take a quick break. Uh, can you hold on a second? Because this, this is really an important topic. So we'll be right back. Sure. Thank you. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Susan Lehman. We're talking about uh, actually the ins and outs and challenges and problems with investigating capital crimes, specifically mitigation. So, Susan, you were talking about your client, Barry. Um, What was the prosecution theory 
of the case? Uh, the, prosec the, the prosecution theory was that Barry was home alone uh, with with the child, his his uh, his wife, the baby's mother, was working uh, her shift at a fast food restaurant. It was the morning. It was probably about ten thirty, eleven o'clock in the morning, and uh, she worked a shift at a fast food restaurant. And then when she would get off work, uh, he would work a shift at a fast food restaurant. They were living in. Uh, uh, federally subsidized housing at the time. And the theory was that the baby was crying. Uh, the baby was about two years old at the time. The theory was the baby was crying and that Barry couldn't quiet the baby and that he shook and shook and shook the baby uh, until the baby had significant brain swelling and the baby, uh, he, he called 911 and uh, and the baby was effectively brain dead by the time the baby got to the hospital. Um, there was, throughout the two years leading up to trial, the, 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 the prosecution had crafted a story uh, that the baby had been sodomized by Barry. And he, the one of the emergency room doctors was was going to testify that he saw some uh, some puckering, essentially, uh, around the anus, and and that that proved that there had been sodomy that had occurred. And so, what essentially could have been explained as a horrible accidental death with the baby shaking turned into a gruesome sodomy case, a gruesomely sexualized case against this young man that made him look like a monster, right? Right. And all of us on the defense team fought and fought and fought and fought because the medical examiner, who was the chief medical examiner in the state of Alabama, had already ruled that there had not been any sodomy, that the baby had not been sodomized. Well, you know, but I mean, really, <laughs> frankly with a, t a two-year-old child who's been sodomized, there would be significant damage. Significant yes, damage. Yes, yes, yes. And, of course, all of this was argued, and all of what people don't realize is that going to trial is not just arrest and then trial. Going to trial is a lengthy, typically two-year process. Before at, at a minimum, before you go to trial, <laughs> and everything, minimum. every yes, at a minimum, like you, you, you know, and everything is discussed. Every aspect of testimony, every aspect of of what the prosecution plans, who the prosecution plans to bring in as witnesses, everything is discussed long before a case is ever put in front of a trial, which is why. I very much believe in the importance of plea deals. Um, in Barry's case, had there been a plea deal, 
Barry should have taken it. And a lot of times, uh, so, all right, let, let me digress here a second. So, the judge was up for re-election. In many states, judge or, judges are elected. And they are typically, these, these criminal judges usually run on a platform of law and order. Look what I've done. I've put this one on death row. I've locked right. up. I've gotten all of these violent criminals off the streets. Mm-hmm. And Barry sodomizing his baby fit right in with that narrative, right? For because sure. that is a shocking allegation to make. And the judge knew it wasn't true, but nevertheless, the judge allowed it to go forward. And I and who, can tell you... Who, uh, Susan, who, who was it that testified? Was it a medical it was, expert? It was a... It was a um, it was the emergency room. It was an emergency room doctor okay. who testified. And he had initially tried to treat the baby. Okay. 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 So I can imagine that there was a lot of emotion tied up in the whole thing. But the medical examiner on conducting the autopsy said conclusively and actually came and testified for the defense that the child had not been sodomized. However, once that jury, that carefully picked jury, heard that that baby had been sodomized, that was it. They heard nothing else. To them, he was the worst kind of monster, and they couldn't wait to convict him. You know, despite anything that we put up, despite any evidence to the contrary, in their minds, he was a monster, and he needed to be executed. So that's the danger. That's the danger of, of uh, I could go into the whole thing, that's the danger of, of elected judges. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the danger of allowing testimony that is not true to be heard by a jury. And that's why mitigation is important as well. Oh. And some prosecutors... Of, of course, there's good prosecutors, but there's some prosecutors will stop at nothing for a conviction, including Absolutely. falsifying testimony, as you just explained. Absolutely. Absolutely. The over-the-top. Because there is a belief that law enforcement, people in law enforcement tell the truth. Mm-hmm. There is a belief that defense attorneys will lie and they will say anything to get their clients off. Right. And there is such a bias. Anytime you have a jury trial, they bring in every single bias, every single television show that they've watched, Mm -hmm. every single, you know, belief system that they have about policing uh, they, they bring all of that into the courtroom and they use all of their belief system to decide the fate of people. And, and you know, my, my husband and I have often talked about if either one of us was charged with a capital crime, we would ask for a bench trial and no jury. Because, really? Yeah. <laughs> because we just simply do not believe that a jury system works. Mm-hmm. In the case of, of, you know, heinous, atrocious, and cruel crimes, which yeah. 
the which the prosecution always tries to prove. So, yes, it's you know it's always such an interesting process, um, and you know I, I admire you for fighting the good fight. As I you you probably know Brandon Perron, right? Out of Florida, yeah. yeah. And Brandon, mm -hmm. who has the um, Certified Criminal Investigator Training Council and trains uh, unreasonable doubt. Um, he always says we're defending the Constitution. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. That is exactly the right, right. description of what uh, criminal defense investigators and particular capital crime investigators are doing. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Yep. Just trying, so, just trying to, to stick to how these laws were written. Trying to stick to, you know, the right to a fair trial. Yeah, Everybody has you know, that right. Somehow we've really lost that idea <laughs> along the way. But so yeah. is is Barry's case still on appeal right now? What's going on with it? Or habeas? Um, you know, I I am not really sure. I haven't spoken with his mother in several years. And I would have to I would have to reach out to her and find out where it is. But my 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 guess is that she has still been unable to pick up anyone to take a look at the case and and try to tackle it. And it would have to be a habeas at this point because all the appellate uh, yes, processes yes, have passed. Yes, yeah. Yes. So that case left such a horrible taste in my mouth about just the miscarriage of the system that I refuse to work on any more capital cases, pretrial capital cases after that point, unless the goal was to work toward a, a plea deal from the get-go and avoid trial altogether. And that was, that was always my, that after that, I never, I never worked on another case that we knew was headed to trial. We always worked toward a plea deal, and I was very selective about the attorneys I worked for after that point. It, so that, that case changed the way I did my pretrial work. Sorry. Um, I guess I muted myself uh, by mistake. Uh, I always find it interesting that people object to plea deals. You know, they think that the defendant is getting away with something when there's a plea made, but the reality really is that they're probably getting in their plea what they should have been charged with originally. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and it was really interesting to me how easy it was to get prosecutors to agree to plea deals. Right. It was almost as if they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Well, of course they that did. they were overcharging. <laughs> that they, that of course they, they, they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, because yeah. they can take they can take the penal code, for example, and charge it five different ways for the same crime, same exact mm -hmm. facts. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the general public doesn't know that. So, um, I want to get I want to get to your books. <laughs> we're, I'm afraid we're running out of time, but I want to talk about okay. what what are the obstacles that you run into uh, in getting family members and community members to testify in a capital crime? Okay, so first of all, um, there's the onus. Okay, uh, there's there's essentially the stink of the crime, right? Mm -hmm. um, people don't realize how vital 
their testimony is. People worry that if, if they come out and even vaguely look like they are in support of this particular person, that, um, it, it, that people in the community will look unfavorably upon them. Um, the, other, the other problem is that sometimes people are ashamed. Sometimes people don't want to realize that they could have helped keep this person out of trouble. My favorite client, Robert Butts, my favorite client, Robert Butts, the one who was executed in Georgia in 2018, his case was, he was, it was overblown. Uh, his, his mother, as I came to learn, was a, um, often absent from the home for weeks at a time because of her drug habit. His father had been, by the time Robert was born, his father had been institutionalized at least 20 times for schizophrenia. And uh, Robert was the eldest. He was quite often left at home in a trailer with two brothers, one who was deeply impaired. There were people in the community who knew what was going on in that trailer when those boys were left alone, okay? That Robert was trying, at the age of 10, he was cooking for his two younger brothers. There were Mm -hmm. sisters, too, but the sisters had been taken by a grandmother, okay, and removed, essentially, from that trailer. But these boys were abandoned, and Robert was in charge at 10 years old. And there were a lot of people in the community, and once we finally got... Uh, the DHR, the, the children's services records. And once I finally started getting in and talking with the teachers, many, many people, including an uncle, knew exactly what was going on, but failed to step in and help. So sad. And a lot of, yep. Yeah, mm. mm-hmm. And a lot of times, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting there in their living room or sitting there, you know, in a conference room, and getting them in, in, the, in the kindest way possible to admit that had they intervened in some way, shape, or form, maybe we wouldn't be having that conversation. Right. It's essentially getting people and getting people in a position where they are willing to stand up in a habeas court, you know, which in this case took place right at the prison, hmm. and talk about how they failed this young man. That's a and hard boy, obstacle to it takes some, And it takes some work. And sometimes you can't get the family members. The family members may acknowledge to you. The family members may break down and cry. They may mm-hmm. say, I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had. But at the end of the day, they didn't. And at the end of the day, they can't. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? At the yeah. end of the day, they still can't do it. You know, but I yeah. had, you know, in Robert's case, I had his kindergarten teacher, you know, testifying that that boy, that she knew back then that that boy was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. You had people from Child Protective Services that have been called in that completely and utterly turned their backs on the situation. I guess they labeled it as, you know, these were poor people and they didn't care. Mm-hmm. And they fell through the cracks. It was the most heartbreaking. And to talk about my book, the last third of my book is Robert's story. Is that the, the current last one? The third sets? of my book. 
Southern lies is, and is homicides. The southern lies, southern and, lies homicides. and homicides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Southern lies and homicides. The last third of the book tells Robert's story as I learned it and as I came to know his story over two years of working on his case. Yes. Well, first of all, I love the yeah. title, by the way. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Thank you. But it, yes, getting it's, a title. It's perfect. Yeah, getting a title for a book is really difficult, I think. Uh, and I that one, a couple of variations, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's, that's one I settled on, yeah. That one pops, it really does. Um, so what's the, first, what's the first part of the book about? First part of the book are my early stories, uh, how I essentially taught myself how to become an investigator. And uh, I, was, uh, I had been divorced uh, from my children's father, I had recently remarried, and uh, his job had brought us from Florida to Alabama. And I had started as a journalist, who was really where my career was. Um, but after the divorce, I realized I needed to make more money. Mm-hmm. And I had decided that becoming a private investigator was the way to do it. It was and the I way to do it? thought it would be fun. How yeah. did that work for you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, um, I'm not even going to answer that question. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but, it's it's an up and down business for sure. <laughs> yes, but I will say that over the years, I was able to put two of my three children through college. That's great. Okay, fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, the other one went into the army. None of them <laughs> okay. followed in my footsteps. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, that, so, so there's an endorsement. So, Susan, your other two books, um, or maybe, is it two books? Yeah, the two, two books. books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested because you, you, it's called Visions of Ted Bundy, the Psychic and the Chi, Chi Omega Murders. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How did you, because usually people don't write about, or were you involved in that case? I should ask that. Um, I, I was, I was a bit involved in, in the Bundy case. I was, I was living and working in Tallahassee and going to school at the time when that happened. And I was, uh, I was working as a fledgling newspaper reporter at the time. And, uh, after the crimes had been committed, there had been, uh, you know, nobody really knew about serial crimes at that point. Mm-hmm. That was that yeah. was kind of a new that was kind of a new thing. And uh, one day somebody approached me at the in the newsroom and he said, "I've got a story to tell you." And he told me that he had worked with law enforcement. He had some sort of visions, and he had worked with law enforcement. He had predicted the death of the young middle school girl in Lake City. And uh, he wanted to tell me his story. And Visions of Ted Bundy is essentially his story. It's his story. And I had corroboration from the former uh, captain of the sheriff's department, who was one of the lead investigators on the case. But it was one of those things where nobody was allowed to talk on the record until after Bundy was executed because they did not want anything they did not right. want to give any defense attorneys. They did not want to give any uh, any grounds for Bundy to get off. They Correct. simply wanted a conviction, and they wanted him executed. So nobody would talk on record publicly until after Bundy was executed. 
so many things happened in the interim to me personally. I had started writing the book in 89, had an agent. I actually won a literary award for it, the literary award for the manuscript, but they wouldn't publish it because that wasn't their genre. Mm. And essentially, you know, I was raising three kids, had a new marriage, and in the new marriage, moved to Alabama and decided that I was going to be a private investigator. <laughs> and and that's what I did. And <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. so I built my business essentially serving papers and doing everything that everybody else does. Uh, to start their business. There was nothing glorious about it. There was, <laughs> there yeah. was nothing, um, nothing, you know, I certainly many days was not nearly as attractive as the, you know, the PIs we see on TV. Um, it was gut work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's really what it was. Uh, and yeah. I taught myself the business. And so those first stories are about the, uh, about my first process service and not having an idea of what I was doing. Mm. And, and, and it worked all the way through some very difficult divorce cases. And, um, I, I'm part of a writer's group here and that's helping keep me focused on writing at this point. And that whole first section leads from, you know, complete idealism and love with the job to being completely burned out. Yeah, and then I get that. the second session, yeah, the second session, the second section, go into the capital stories. Mm. And so Susan, that, that's where those go. Yeah, we're almost, and we're they're going to cut us off in a minute because uh, we're almost out of time. Ah, but, okay, <laughs> but I love talking to you. And uh, for those of you who want to know more about Susan, you can go to www.whiterhinopress.com. And if you want yes. to order a book, I'm sure they're on Amazon, correct? Everything's Amazon. on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So uh, thank you so much. I always enjoy talking to you and uh, uh, have a, a good rest of the year. We hope we get over the COVID piece and mm -hmm. <laughs> we can get our years mm -hmm. back. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, yes, because um, we're not that young anymore, right? You know, we don't like to miss all that time. So exactly. um, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. All right, Susan, take care. And to the rest of you, it's PIs Declassified. It's Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.